This is Firehouse Confessions, Episode 4. Warning, this uh, story may be graphic for some, as I describe in detail some of the particulars of the call I went on. And so some years ago, I was dispatched to a, a call, a pedestrian versus a train. And so that's never good. So I was an engineer at the time, and we take off out the station and start responding. And we get there, there's no pedestrian or train. And so we found out that the train was still about a half mile back into the woods, well, woodline. And so uh, we get out the truck and we start to traverse uh, the terrain. And so we're walking, we're walking, and we slowly start to uh, see the makings of the front engine. And so we come across the conductor and he is almost uh, catatonic at this point. He's only muttering um, one word and that was, he looked at me. He, he looked at me, he kept saying that. He probably said that about, six or seven times um, that the guy looked at him. And so uh, we looked at the front of the train and there was no markings of anything where he you know, made contact um, with the pedestrian. So we were kind of like, you know, we were weirded out by that because, you know, if he hit the, if uh, the train hit the guy, you know, where is he? Or what's left of him? So I did see on the front wheel that uh, his scalp was almost completely removed. So in the front wheel of the train, his scalp was attached to the wheel along with his hair. And so uh, I knew then that, you know, what this was probably going to be. And so uh, we left the conductor with somebody, um, you know, just for his uh, mental safety. And, you know, he needed company at that time. And um, I believe the company that he worked for was sending a representative to relieve him and uh, to get him the treatment that he needed. So we continued on to the woods about another half a mile. And we started to see the makings of a body lying on the ground. And so when we finally get to the body it does not look like uh, somebody who might have been homeless or living in the woods or you know a panhandler it didn't look like that um, the shoes were pretty nice the jeans looked to be a designer he had on a, a, a nice uh, form-fitting hoodie and uh, he had uh, some some high dollar headphones on plugged into an uh, ipod and the uh, headphones were intact they weren't broken um, the only thing that was missing was his head um, but even in that, there was very little blood. I guess the train um, removed his head, decapitated it, but cauterized the wound. And so you essentially had a, a complete body intact, no, no signs of trauma other than the head missing. And so in that moment, a lot of times, you know, we kind of, your, your brain kind of goes off to a different place and you think a little bit differently. But in that moment, we all were just kind of standing over the body and, and we all had the same thought. You know, what was he listening to? You know, what music, what song would you play in your final moments as a train barreled down on you? And so uh, we were just trying to, you know, just trying to gather as much facts and evidence as we could. You know, this guy appears to be well-dressed, so he's not, he's not a hobo. He's not, a, you know, appear to be homeless um, just by, you know, the style of dress that he had. And so, you know, what would cause this guy to do such a thing? And there was still the issue of trying to find his head. And so uh, EMS arrives on scene, they, they come across the body, you know, we tell them everything that we discovered thus far. And so all of us kind of spread out in search of this guy's head, I, I never forget that. And so uh, the sun is setting, it's, it's gotten dark now, and this is like a, you know, 80, 90 car train. And so uh, we get several cars down and then the, the EMT hollers out, I got him, I got him. And so uh, she reaches under the train and she pulls his head out. 
And um, by this by this point, the police have gotten involved. They have they know who the guy is, or who they believe he is. They have a picture ID of him, and so you know we have an idea of what he looks like. So I never forget the MT looks at the picture that the police have given all of us. Looks at his head, confirms the match, and then drops it in a bag and gives it to the coroner, who is now on scene now. And so they load him up, um, head and body detached into the van and you know that was the end of the call and so for me you know I've always just kind of wondered you know what was so bad that this guy felt that this was his only option and in time we would learn you know a little bit of his story that he was a veteran that uh, he served his country he came home and could not find you know, a decent job uh, he had had several before he decided to uh, commit that final act but that was the end of his story. And so it just kind of, it made me very sad to think that, you know, he went off to another country to, to a war, survived that only to become a casualty here in America. Um, because of his despair or depression, he felt like he had no other option. And so that has always left me sad because, you know, had somebody been in his life that, that, that he could have talked to or he had just reached out for help, maybe that could have been prevented. And so, um, yeah, I'll never forget that. That's a story that I have of a veteran story uh, that I learned about. Y'all stay tuned for my final thoughts as I close in the next segment. I told you that story and how I was saddened by it. But the truth is, you know, his story could have very well been a first responder story. Um, the veteran suicide rate has been a problem for a long time, and I hope the federal government continues to pursue avenues of better treatment and just access to, you know, to help that these veterans sometimes so desperately need. But I, uh, I was surprised to learn that the suicide rate among first responders uh, was so high. Um, in fact, last year, more firefighters and police died from suicide than in the line of duty. So this is a real problem. I mean, suicide, depression, um, despair, all of the things that come with doing this job is real. And we are real casualties of this. And so we have to remove the stigma. Um, what we do is not normal. Um, it's courageous, it's honorable, um, it's to be commended, but it is not normal. And so you can't do these things and witness these things and not be affected by it. Even if you think you're not affected by it, I guarantee you if I were to talk to your, your loved ones or your spouse or significant other, they would tell you something different. And so we have to remove the stigma of uh, mental health when it comes to these jobs that we have. Um, this, that's, that, that comes with the profession. I mean, you cannot witness some of these things and not be greatly affected by it. You're not a robot, you're not superhuman, you're not the action figures that you see on TV. And I've been there, I, you know, I was 19 when I first started in this profession and I thought I was a robot. I thought that nothing, um, nothing could get next to me, I was impenetrable. And I was wrong, I'm just gonna be honest with you, I, I was wrong. After almost 20 years of doing this, there are things that have affected me. And I believe that I am a different person than I was um, when I started at the age of 19. And so for anybody out there, you don't have to be a first responder, but anybody that's suffering with thoughts of suicide or harming themselves or depression, uh, please call the National Lifeline. This is gonna be uh, the Suicide 
Prevent Your Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. I'm No Smoke Jones. Until next time, y'all be safe. The podcast you just heard was published with Anchor. Got something you want to say to the creator of this show? Send them a voice message using the Anchor app, free for iOS and Android.